Hello, it's Monday, March the 6th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, Dr. Corey Shockey, Hoover Institution Fellow, Stanford University teacher, and co-author along with Jim Mattis, now Secretary of Defense James Mattis, of the book Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military. And that's our topic today, America's Military. Corey, good to see you. It's such a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Now, Corey Shockey covers a lot of bandwidth here at Hoover. She follows international relations. She follows national security, NATO, foreign policies. That's just what's listed on your biography. But I wanted you to talk about defense because I know for you this is a personal subject. You've taught at West Point. You have a nephew who's an Air Force pilot, and I know better than to try to phone you on Memorial Day because that is a day that you go off the grid. Why is the military such a personal thing for you, Corey? You know, I had the great pleasure to, um, very early in my career, uh, work in the Joint Staff, so the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, staff, and I went there straight out of graduate school. I didn't actually know much about the American military when I went, and what I learned in General Powell's staff is that mostly what the American military are are great teachers because they live in a world where you cannot be successful unless you can make everyone around you successful. And I was the person everybody had to make successful because everybody else in the staff had 15 years of operational military service that trained their judgment. Um, and so I was Powell's science project, right? The proof that you could teach any dog to talk. And it was such a privilege for me to get the education of them investing in me. Um, and so that's how I became what the Army calls the daughter of the regiment. <laughs> uh, explain briefly America's attitude toward the military right now. So what Jim and I found in the surveys that we commissioned by YouGov that formed the basis of the book, Warriors and Citizens, we got started on this because, um, you know, in dealing with the American military, we have a small military relative to our population. Less than one half of 1% of Americans are in military service. We have a professional military, that is folks stay in military service for longer periods of time than, than if they were cycling through as a, a conscription model. And the third, uh, we have a volunteer force. Right, so the people who are in America's military are motivated to do the work of our country in military service. And that makes them much better at their job than conscripted militaries would be. But it also puts them at one remove from civilian society. Um, and we have had a volunteer force since the end of the Vietnam War. It unquestionably changed America's civilian relationship to its military in two ways. First, um, Americans became a lot more supportive of their military right. when people stopped being at risk of conscription. Um, it, it changed in very positive ways, the civil-military compact. But the second thing that happened is that, when, um, is that people became less and less knowledgeable, less and less connected. You know, you very often hear military folks say, we're not a country at war, we're just an army at war. And there's some truth to that, right? Because most people who have no familiarity or connection to the American military don't realize what the experience of 
moving your children every two years and teaching them to be vibrant and successful without the kind of deep community roots that most American families have. Or, you know, what it's like to suddenly be a single parent when your mom deploys on a Navy ship for six months. Um, so, uh, so we did this big survey of American public attitudes uh, two surveys, in fact, and then pushed the data out to scholars. We made it free and accessible to everyone because we wanted to spur scholarship on the subject. What we realized, and the other authors who contributed to the book, Warriors and Citizens, realized is that my experience is actually of, of knowing nothing about the American military and on some familiarity. Uh, developing a very strong, positive admiration and respect for what they do is actually normal. That, that it's most people's experience. In fact, it's 95% of Americans' experience. There are only 5% of Americans, self-described very liberal Americans, uh, whose answers to these questions vary widely from everyone else's. Now, you worked for John McCain when he ran for president in 2008. Indeed. I sailed on the pirate ship McCain. McCain is something of a political unicorn because McCain's life has been largely defined by military service. POW in Vietnam, Donald Trump does not have military service. Neither did Barack Obama. George W. Bush served in the National Guard. Bill Clinton did not serve in the military. It would seem this is the new, new in presidential politics. We will have presidents without military service. You look at the 115th Congress, Corey, 82 House members have military service. 20 senators out of 100 have military service. Is this a problem with running the government when we are trying to craft defense policy, but we don't have elected officials, lawmakers, who actually know what it is to wear a uniform and to serve? I actually don't think so, although I am um, an anomaly among civil military scholars in thinking so. Okay, I'd like to hear this because, for example, when you nominate somebody to be the education secretary, the pushback right away, what Betsy DeVos in particular was, well, she's never taught in the classroom, so what does she know about education? So, anyway, defend your position. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so first of all, uh, the only way to fix this problem is either to return to universal conscription so that every American has military service or to uh, refuse to vote for candidates who don't have military service. Right. And I think both of those are bad outcomes for the country. So to some extent, I think fewer and fewer elected leaders having military service um, is, is like gravity. It's just happening. And the alternatives to reverse it are so draconian that none of us are going to take those, those options. So I'm not sure we should bemoan it. What it does, though, is it has a couple of effects. One is that, um, and it can cut both directions, right? So mm -hmm. I, for example, uh, think that Congress is much too deferential to budget proposals put forward by the military. I actually think good conservatives are cheap, and, and there is a, a pronounced hesitance on the part of members of Congress to vote against military spending on any count because they don't want to look like they are not supporting the troops. And where this is most pronounced mm -hmm. is in uh, personnel costs, right. in pay raises, in health care. 
and what we have seen over the last 15 years is that the very problem we have in the federal budget writ large, that is entitlements crowding out discretionary spending, right. we also have internal to the defense budget. The cost of the, the all-volunteer force is rapidly becoming unaffordable because Congress keeps giving them pay raises and benefits that crowd out spending on training, on weapons, um, and other things that keep soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines alive when you put them in combat. So um, because we have a Congress that's not experienced on military issues, they defer to budget requests for things that, that the service chiefs and the Secretary of Defense would like to stop they would like to not give our military more pay raises. They would like to give them more training and better equipment. Right. Now, the House Armed Services Committee, the chairman is uh, Mac Thornberry. He's an attorney. Uh, the ranking member is Adam Smith, not the economist, who would be 294 years old this who year. Who would say no to their budget proposals. <laughs> he, he turns 294 this year, the economist. That's <laughs> old even by strong thermostats. But on the Senate side, Corey, you have uh, as the chairman, John McCain. And the ranking member is Jack Reed. And John McCain is an Annapolis man, and Jack Reed is a West Point man, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Are they perhaps the Diogenes in this conversation in terms, about, in terms of honest men who are going to hold a candle up and look for, look for cost overruns in the Pentagon and questioning pensions and things like that? I do think both John McCain and Jack Reed are terrific chairs of armed services. They're thoughtful. They're serious. They're tough-minded. But I would point out to you that um, n they did not, nobody on armed services, nor the United Military Chiefs, nor the Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. seemed capable of changing a single vote these last several years when all of them were trying to overturn sequestration. Right. So last week, the White House budget director said that the president's first proposed budget will contain $603 billion in defense discretionary spending. Uh, that is an increase of about $52 billion, or 9.4% higher than uh, fiscal year 2017. For historical reference, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan enacted double-digit increases during their presidencies. Uh, that includes a 25% increase in 1981 for Reagan. You've looked at this proposal, I trust. You've, you've looked it over. What are your thoughts on it? So I have a couple of reflections on it. First, um, a fingerprint of John McCain. He voted against the Republican budget director because he believed he cared too much about budget austerity and not enough about defense policy. So, so there's a marker on the wall. The uh, second thing is the immediate item of business in front of the Congress is the $54 billion mm -hmm. supplemental spending request that right. the Trump administration put forward, most of which will go to fill potholes in the services readiness accounts, mm -hmm. right? So it will go for more training, fuel, ammunition, flying hours, uh, things that have been eroding the combat effectiveness of our force. And it's only when you get to the 18 budget that they will start uh, recruiting additional soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, buying new platforms, things like that. Mm -hmm. One of the problems that sequestration uh, brought to the force is that it required a 10% across the board cut. And while I, um, I am uh, rare among defense experts in that I don't think 
defense spending is catastrophically low. I actually think that there's a fair amount of money still sloshing around in the defense budget that better management of the of the budget could produce. A big part of why the budget isn't more efficient is Congress, because they make they keep bases open that the military wants to close, things like that. Right. But um, uh, with sequestration, because you had to take an across-the-board cut, it actually aggravated the bad management of the budget because you couldn't prioritize your spending. You had to cut everything equally. And um, what the 18 budget will do, hopefully, with congressional support, is return to regular business in the Defense Department. So you can, excuse me, have a five-year spending timeline and be able to recruit soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. You can start contracts for new equipment, which you hadn't been able to do under sequestration. Those, it's less the amount of money than the unpredictability and inability to have regular business. So I wrote down a, a list of possibilities for ways to spend money. It's okay. nothing, nothing more fun than spending other people's money, especially when it's $54 billion. Um, and I came up with a list of general concepts for how to spend defense money, one of which you've already recognized, which would be basic maintenance of weapons in use. Here are some of my criteria. So in terms of how to spend money, more ships. More troops, better pay. Training. The Air Force talks about having pilot shortages. They don't train enough pilots, apparently. Um, basic maintenance weapons we mentioned. Readiness versus long-term investment in technology. But then there's a question of contracting and procurement. And then on the outside, we'll get to this in a minute, is NATO. So you sounds to me like you've identified uh, maintenance of weapons in use as your priority right now. But if you, you're the queen here, you get to drive the $54 billion show here, how would you prioritize your spending? Uh, so the Queen doesn't get to prioritize defense spending. The Secretary of Defense does and the Congress. Uh, but, I, but I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to stand for a couple of minutes yes. in their shoes. Um, I, I think uh, the overall top line ought to be focused on, um, on sizing the force, both with number of ships and platforms, but more importantly, with people, mm -hmm. because because folks in our military have been working hard. It is not true that they need to be paid more. In fact, they are overpaid relative to their civilian counterparts. It As a general budgeting rule, and I know this sounds hard-hearted, but budgeting is hard-hearted. Um, as a general budgeting rule, you need to pay, in order to recruit the people you want to have in the military forces, you need to pay them about 75% of their civilian equivalent. The other 25% gets filled by patriotism, by motivation to have the opportunities of military service. Um, we now pay them more than their civilian counterparts, and the 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 public conception is these generals get paid so much too much money and they have airplanes to fly them places. Actually, the proportionality is inverse. The people who are most overpaid are lance corporals. The people who are least overpaid relative to their civilian counterparts are the senior military leadership. They don't need to be paid more. Um, they don't need better benefits. What they do want, though, mm -hmm is they want to be able to have a greater range of choice. And in particular, surveys that folks have done, like our Hoover colleague, Tim Kaine, um, of, of service members suggests that actually having more control over the, where they are stationed and when 
um, would make more of a difference in keeping people in the force than pay incentives. So, so just greater flexibility rather than more money matters there. Um, we do not need to spend more money on NATO. NATO allies need to spend more money on us. Um, and um, let's see, what else was on the list? Oh, you know, we waste an enormous amount of money in our procurement system. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for waste in the procurement system is virtuous, right? It's greater congressional oversight. It's ensuring that we keep a diversity of defense contractors bidding for things and, and taking new starts. We don't do right. enough of that, actually. But there are a lot of other, other ways in which we make the procurement process not just unduly expensive, but we make it unduly difficult for innovative, cutting-edge companies who aren't big defense contractors to contribute what they're good at to our national defense effort. Um, we need to limber that up an enormous amount, and I'm really pleased that Chairman Thornberry and Chairman McCain are hard at work on that. And the concept, Corey, of how much to spend on readiness versus how much to spend on long-term investment in technology. How do you how do you balance those two concerns? Yeah. Um, so uh, we are probably underspending on both of those things at the moment, mm -hmm. right? Because we have tiered our near-term readiness towards units that are deploying, mm -hmm. uh, and so units that are not deploying uh, have been have been getting short shrift in this. Uh, so, so we need to plus that up. But uh, we have uh, Secretary Gates, when he came into office, prior he was outraged that the military services were not making improving the near-term warfighting effort their top priority. So he swung the pendulum more towards near-term combat readiness, and I think that was appropriate. But but we probably have the balance a little bit wrong now. We should probably begin to in swing the pendulum back a little bit more uh, towards longer-term innovative capabilities, mm -hmm. right? So launching unmanned aircraft off of unmanned ships in large numbers to go after China's ballistic missiles on their side of the Taiwan Strait, for example. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of innovations, which are America's greatest warfighting strength, right? Our adaptability is what we do better than everybody else. And we have a pretty demanding threat problem set out there in the medium and the long term. And I would like to see us put more effort to thinking creatively about not how many aircraft carriers do we need, but what do we need to, for example, protect Seoul, South Korea from the artillery across the DMZ on the northern side? So shift from thinking about platforms, number of aircraft carriers, number of squadrons, to think about how do we attack problem sets? So shift the mindset from the platform to the problem. That would limber us up a lot. And I am confident Secretary Mattis um, will, he is so diabolically creative that I'm confident he will bring a lot of energy into that portfolio. Now, Donald Trump would love the public to believe that he is Ronald Reagan reincarnated in terms of a defense buildup. Uh, and this may be a bit of a naive question, but explain to me the difference 
between 1981 and now. Obviously, facing off against a superpower, but the same concept of you're going to revitalize the military to do what America needs to do. But what is the difference between then and now as you, as you look at the two ages? Uh, so one big difference is that uh, we had one very demanding adversary in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. right? A, a country that not only had the ability with its nuclear and conventional forces to destroy the United States, but also seemed to want to do that. Um, and so, you know, as you assess threats, it's the will and the capability. And we had the luxury of focusing our effort narrowly, but on a very tall building um, of demand. Right. What has changed since then is that uh, Russia is not as big a threat to us as the Soviet Union posed. Uh, so you have less demanding threats, but you also have more of them, right? China has been investing 11, 12, 15 percent. We don't really know because their numbers are not honest right. um, in its defense and has been growing blue water Navy capability. They've been growing um, all their their capability portfolios. They're not the American Navy and they're not going to be anytime soon. Right. But but the diversity of threats that we're facing, ISIS, which is a low, you know, it's an aggravation, it's something to be frightened of, but if we really got serious about defeating ISIS, there is no doubt the American military could do so. In fact, there's no doubt that the Iraqi and sad to say Syrian militaries could do so with a lot of support for us. I don't favor aiding Bashar al-Assad's government, but there's a good argument that can be made that keeping Assad in power prevents a worse outcome, and we can at least um, uh, then have a controlled space in Syria and crush ISIS, and then turn to the problem of Bashar al-Assad. I personally think that's a mistake, but I do think that is the administration's strategy mm -hmm. for defeating ISIS. Were the president to ask you to come to the White House and sit down with him and explain what the Reagan buildup got right and what it got wrong, what would you tell him? I would tell him that the, the most important thing the Reagan buildup got right was conceptual. It wasn't shoving money out the windows um, in, in stimulus to defense. It wasn't even what they bought. It was, it was shattering the belief that the United States, because of the Vietnam War, would be unwilling to use military force to mm -hmm. defend and advance its interests. It was encouraging our military to an innovative, aggressive mindset rather than a, a sort of passive, responsive mindset that had been the case throughout most of the Carter administration. And I actually think President Trump could well achieve that. I, I think a series of decisions that I believe, or that it looks to me as an armchair traveler, it looks to me that he is making. Uh, for example, um, you know, President Obama congratulated himself and all the people, all of his supporters congratulated themselves for the president not making the decision on a special forces raid unless he was in the Situation Room, surrounded by all of his advisors and people telling him what the legal constraints were. 
I actually think it's kind of a useful signal that President Trump decided over dinner that the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff advocating for CENTCOM and Special Forces Command to be able to conduct the raid in Yemen that they did. Pushing down the level of authorization much closer to where commanders can take advantage of initiative and do things. That actually sent a really important signal in the American military, and it's a signal worth sustaining. And there, there I see a parallel to the Reagan administration. Secretary Mattis, your co-author, is the first Secretary of Defense since, I believe, George Marshall to have come from the military. Um, good thing, bad thing? Uh, so uh, one should never build a system around Jim Mattis because he's so anomalous in so many ways that, you know, it's a great thing that he is the Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration. Well, let's take a, let's but take a look. Okay, go ahead. that is no way to build the system, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that we have had the cooling off period in place before a military person could serve as the civilian leader of the Department of Defense it has several very important and still valid reasons it was put in place. Right. One of them is so that presidents would not believe that their senior military advisors were, were politicizing the military council they were giving the president. Mm -hmm. So the, the American system of civil-military relations at its highest levels between the president and his senior military advisors that only works well when you have a high level of trust between them. And the cooling off period was designed to make sure that the president didn't have to worry that somebody was going to do like what Mike Flynn and John Allen did this presidential cycle, right? Retire, immediately become political actors criticizing the defense policy choices of the president. That's actually bad for civil-military relations in the United States. The public doesn't mind it, but here's the thing. The public advocates retired military leaders having sharp-edged political roles, but it also makes the public respect the military less. We can already see that in the polling of public attitudes. So it's bad for the military in the long run to do this. Moreover, it makes the job of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the combatant committee, excuse me, they, they, whatever they call them since Rumsfeld ruled it out, are senior military commanders. Right. It makes it harder for them to be seen as apolitical advocates of carrying out the president's policies. Um, so, so don't build the system this way. It's not a good way to build the system. Although Jim Mattis is a terrific defense secretary and I sleep better at night because he's doing this work. Having written a book with him, you've had a chance to see how the mind works. To those listening to this podcast who are familiar with his story, his career, and they've heard Mad Dog and they've, they've heard Warrior Monk and those things, explain to our listeners really what separates Jim Mattis from the crowd. Uh, uh, quite a number of things. Uh, one, he spent 21 days in jail for slugging a cop and congratulates himself for having found a profession where he could be rewarded for doing what came naturally to him, which is aggressively going into the fight. To say to Cabot, he was a very young man when he slugged the cop, I Indeed, trust. Indeed, he was a teenager when he did that. Um, and 
in Jim's case, as in the case for so many other Americans, what his military service did was give him self-discipline, self-respect, maturity. He didn't start out as the officer we all know and as the secretary we all know. Mm -hmm. He grew to that through professional education, through responsibility. Um, what make, Several things make Jim different in this. First, um, he understands civil-military relations better than just about anyone. And let me give you the hard-edged example. Right, um, Jim was uh, released from his job as the CENTCOM commander early by the Obama administration. Right, so so getting fired didn't make him strident and political. He didn't get involved in politics. He didn't uh, endorse any political candidates because he rightly understands that every senior military officer serves at the pleasure of the president. And you have no right to complain ending up as a four-star general and getting fired early. Mm -hmm. um, and Jim understands that and understands that the president has the right to private counsel from his military leadership and shouldn't have to always litigate these issues in public. Those are really important things, um, placeholders, anchors of civil-military relations in the United States. Second thing is, um, he is as well-read on issues of warfare as anyone in this country and better read than almost everyone in this country, right? He takes seriously Thucydides and Marcus Aurelius um, and Jomini and the canon of literature. As important, excuse me, the canon of military issues. As important, though, he's a careful reader of literature. He understands that warfare is a violent contest of political will, and the human dimension is always the most important dimension in warfare. As an aside, I remember talking to him one time when he was here at Hoover, and he asked me to recommend five good movies for him to see. And I said... I bet he'd seen none. That's what I asked. I said, you don't go to the movies? He said, no, I don't have I, the time. I'm reading. I... I feel like Virgil to Jim's Dante because I'm always having to be his cultural interpreter of movies of the last 40 years. And anyone who knows me knows what a joke that is, right, Bill? Because you're always having to tell me modern culture references. Well, he should go see Bull Durham, I think, and that's, <laughs> and that's the answer. Let's get out of here with two questions. First of all, um, I don't want to betray any confidences you've had with Secretary Mattis, but putting yourself in his shoes, how do you think he would define success in his job? Oh, wow, that's a really good question. Um, here's how he should define success, uh, which is an American military trained, equipped, and ferociously ready to fight any wars the president determines the country's interests require. Um, I think that's the best definition of the Secretary of Defense's job. Mm -hmm. Should we look for the Secretary to go to an academy and give a paradigm-shifting speech, or is this just a continuation of what we're doing now, but just doing it better with better resources? Um, I think we have much too much speechifying and much too little decision-making uh, in American national security policy. Uh, I would much rather have people 
Look for the fingerprints like delegation of approval authority for military operations mm -hmm. and those kinds of indications of what is changing. I, I think people in military service and people in the national security community watch those smoke signals pretty carefully. And I think, especially with this president, um, our defense policy would be best served by less talk and more action. Okay. Now the final question, how does Corey Shockey measure success for the Trump administration when it comes to defense policy? Yeah, um, clarity and consistency would be the measures of success I am most worried that the Trump administration is failing at and may continue to fail at. I think the president um, has said quite a number of contradictory things on national security policy and a number of um, very, made a number of very exciting statements that uh, confuse our allies and our adversaries give, alike. Give us an example of each, the contradiction and then the exciting. Uh, so the contradiction would be on the day of President Trump's speech to the joint session of Congress, where he famously and quite poignantly showcased a grieving widow of a serviceman killed in the raid. Right. He blamed the generals and said they approved it, he didn't. He avoided responsibility for that, that rightly rests with the commander in chief. You know, there's a saying in the military, you can delegate authority, you can't delegate responsibility. Um, and responsibility always rests with the commander in chief on the use of force. Um, so, so on the very same day in which he was praising a fallen service member and talking about the importance of the American military, he was out of the other side of his mouth, um, avoiding his proper responsibility uh, for that. So that confuses people. They don't know. And right. in national security policy, clarity actually matters. It helps your allies t take initiative and take action that supports and reinforces what you want done. It helps enemies understand where the lines are that will trigger an American reaction. And I think both of those um, things, President Trump has not been as clear as he should be, and it would greatly advantage our country for him to be more clear and to be more consistent. I remember as a, uh, actually, I'm gonna ask you one more question. I, I lied. Uh, I remember as a young man uh, after college, I was traveling through Europe. I remember traveling through England, and this was at the time, I think, of the Pershing missile controversy, and the British were just having great fun at Ronald Reagan's expense. I mean, you'd walk by bookstores, there'd be posters of Ronald Reagan as Clark Gable holding Margaret Thatcher as if it's gone with right. the wind. <laughs> there were, um, I remember seeing illustrations of Ronald Reagan straddling a globe with a cowboy outfit on with a couple of nuclear weapons for holsters. You travel, you're a citizen of the world. You you go to Europe often. You're you're a globe trotter. What are you seeing right now as you go as you go beyond the state? Are, are countries trying to process the fact that Donald Trump is president? Have they taken another step and thought, my goodness, he's going to get us in the trouble? Or what what exactly is the mood right now? Uh, so basically, every country in the world is terrified by the American political system because anybody can get elected president in this country. <laughs> Right? Like party, you don't have to spend 20 years working your way up the parliamentary ladder. Right? The American people pick who they want. Right. Um, and it's what makes American democracy so vibrant and so vital. 
but it scares America's friends and it scares America's enemies. That is not unique to this uh, presidential election, but it has been heightened in this presidential election by some of the unconventional positions President candidate Trump took um, about trade policy, about Japan and South Korea going nuclear instead of us defending them, mm -hmm. about Europeans paying more for their defense, which, by the way, the president is right about. Um, there are, what, three NATO countries, I think, right now that, that pay their share. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, about uh, his views on Vladimir Putin and Russia and his praise of the authoritarian Chinese government. These are just a lot of not particularly traditional positions for a conservative politician to have taken. So yes, allies are spending a lot of time and effort trying to understand what's happening. They are doing it with varying degrees of success. Japan's prime minister, Shinzo Abe, has played it as well as anyone as I have seen. He went early to meet the president. He didn't condescend to the president the way, for example, German Chancellor Angela Merkel did, leaking that she had had to explain the Geneva Conventions to him. She leaked the contents of her other phone call as well. Again, for she's, she's at the start of an election season. This is domestic politics. Right. But it will unquestionably damage her relationship with President Trump. And Europeans, as a general rule, have just been so condescending, even I don't want to hear it. Um, and, and I'm friendly to our European allies. They, the extent to which, you know, they want to explain to us uh, how democracy works gets tiresome. And right now they are worked up into a lather. I recently had a, a European colleague tell me that, you know, I could take asylum in France because after all, Hitler killed all the moderates like me first, and therefore I might want to consider it. And, and you know, having to remind them that the Marine Le Pen. system of checks and balances is quite robust in this United yeah. States. Um, and how about you get your own house in order and leave us uh, the chance to do our own domestic politics. But, but see, that's the thing about being the leader of the free world and the hegemon of the international order. Everybody is pretty knowledgeable about what's happening in your country, and everybody's got an opinion on it they want to give you, right? Like, that's, that's the responsibility of a great power, to have to listen patiently to other people condescending to us. Corey Shockey, that was a great talk. And I think for the record, this is the longest you and I have ever gone in a conversation in March without talking about our shared passion of <laughs> baseball. That's exactly right. Next podcast is me and Bill talking about the St. Louis Cardinals and the Orioles. I love it. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy choices confronting America's 45th president. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends the best work of Hoover Fellows, including Corey Shockey, straight to your inbox five days a week. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst, at HooverInst. Corey Shockey is on Twitter, and her Twitter handle is at Corey Shockey. You spell that K-O-R-I-S-C-H-A-K-E. Please did I get that right. Tricky last name to spell. At Corey Shockey is her Twitter handle. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another edition of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 
I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.